stand by me. Let's protect this tree from the freeway misery. Who knows how the monster started to grow that way? Her parents are frightened, wish it would go away. But the taxes keep coming, they have to be spent on the big bull. And the tanks of cement. Oh, stand by me. Let's protect this tree from Hello, and welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Uh, in this episode, I will be exploring a new writer. Um, we have finished up James Edgy, and now we're going to um, jump into uh, Aldo Leopold. Uh, the Library of America published one volume of his of his collected works. Um, he's most well known for the book we're going to start with called The Sand County Almanac, but he also wrote a lot of works on conservation uh, in ecology, and we have his letters. So altogether, that makes uh, a nice 800-page volume, but um, I don't think, I think that's a fair sample of, of, of his work. Most people know him for Sand County Almanac. It's considered one of the most important works in ecology. It's a turning point work uh, written in I guess was it published it was published right after he died I mean he he got like the news that the book was to be published and then he was out uh, you know he he was out in the woods I think he was planting trees and he um, so he got, yeah so on April 14th 1948 he got the news that his manuscript had been um, accepted on April 21st he succumbs to a heart attack and dies while helping to fight an escape grass fire neighbor's farm near the shack where in Wisconsin, where he did a lot of his observations and he did a, a lot of his later ecological work from the shack. Um, now, this is a little bit different than a lot of Library of America volumes, which tend to be chronological. Uh, you know, they, they always are mixed up somewhat like the Agi one was too, because you, you kind of just just the the best way to organize the works is not always chronological, right? Sometimes you have the stories and the novels, you separate them or whatever. In this case, you know, putting the very last thing he wrote first, I, I think actually works pretty well in my view because he, this sums up so much of where Leopold got to by the end of his life. Um, I think Leopold's an interesting figure in the history of ecology because he does change his views on, on key issues. What he's most known for is where he got to when he died, right? And that position went through a lot of evolution over a career as essentially a civil servant, as a someone working for the state, for state management of you know conservation work through state governments. And he was involved in things like the eradication of predators, things that he's most well known for now for being against. His most famous essay, Thinking Like a Mountain, is a polemic against eradicating the eradication of predators. But he worked with that. You know, he worked on game management, which really is about nature for the sake of of sportsmen and for humans, right? He works in conservation, which conservation is good and all, but remember, conservation is preserving nature for for human use, right? Like a, a, a paper mill that plants trees, plants two trees for every tree they take down, isn't necessarily trying to rebuild the forests. They just want to make sure as their company grows that there's going to be two trees in the future, right? For every tree they cut down because they plan, they plan to grow that much. It's not that they're trying to double up 
you know, to leave more trees behind than they take. They just want to have more trees to take in the future. Uh, conservation can be that way. It's saving things for human use. Um, this is versus pre preservation or ecology, which, which sees humans as just one part of, of the whole ecosystem and, and maybe an important part, but not the center of it. And, and therefore, nature should be preserved from human impact and protected from it, not just saved. Not just, it's not just a savings account for our future exploitation. But I think Leopold changed his view on this too. Um, over the course of his career. And that, I think that's important because, you know, the way we look at the later half of the 20th century in America as in terms of the history of environment as, as an era in which ecological consciousness expands. It's got this work, San County Almanac, you have Silent Spring, you have movements like Earth First in the 60s, or was that in the 80s? 60s through the 80s, I'm not sure when it started. Greenpeace and other groups that push forward this ecological argument and other works. Um, I haven't looked at them yet in this series, but there are other nature writers in American history, of course, published by the Library of America, Bartram, John Muir, Autobahn, just to name a few. We also have later 20th century nature writers in the Library of America, like Wendell Berry. Um, so I look forward to, to someday getting to these, these writers. But I, I have the Bartram, I have the Autobahn. I don't have the Muir, I should get that. But I'm, you know, I, I I, wanted, I knew I wanted to do some ecology writing, um, and even though it's not really my specialty, it's something I'm deeply interested in. My own perspectives are that of social ecology, the ideas of Murray Bookchin, which is a, more of an anarchist perspective, or at least it comes out of the anarchist tradition in a way, but the ideas of Murray Bookchin are that our ecological problems are rooted in our social problems. Uh, that's not the view of, of Aldo Leopold, who, who does think we can have a healthy relationship with nature without necessarily talking about society, although he does a little bit. I mean, Aldo Leopold is not unaware that society is the root problem in some ways, but, but not in the way that Bookchin does. Um, so, but anyways, I have an interest in ecology and I've been wanting to do some, and I didn't know where to start really. I thought about starting with Bartram, but Bartram's a bit tough to get into, I think. He's, it's partially because it's an 18th century work. Um, so I decided to go through the Leopold, and I like that this book starts with the San County Almanac because, you know, partially it's near to my own life. It's, it's, it's written about a place not far from where I grew up. So I know this environment a little bit. I'm familiar with it. And also, personally, like, I had it, I don't know if maybe this happens all over the world, but I don't know if that's because I grew up in Wisconsin, but I had a, a biology teacher. His name was, was Mr. Jacobs. Um, and actually I had to go on Facebook and ask, what was the name of that teacher? But uh, that was his name. And he would read to us Aldo Leopold from the San County Almanac. Maybe now, now that I'm teaching, I'm thinking, well, was he just, just didn't want to plan a lesson that day? But thinking back, I remember that. It's something I remember. I remember those words. I remember the words of Aldo Leopold in my, you know, affecting me. I remember listening to those those little vignettes and, and you know, San Colonial really is that way. It's perfect for reading aloud because very rarely does he go more beyond. He, he can make his point in two pages or three pages. And he's got a lot of little chapters uh, that, that make the point quickly, easily, clear expressions, you know, perfect clarity. 
um, beautiful writing, um, and and it, it's great, you know, for someone who's not really known as a writer. I mean, what do we have? We have this one book. He wrote a book on game management, which must have been dull. I think we have some selections of it. We have a lot of little writing, you know, that he did. Some of it's on conservation and ecology and stuff. We have his journals. We have some of his journals here. We have his letters. So the way it's going to work is we're going to spend two episodes on the Sand County Almanac, three episodes on his other nature writing, two volumes on his journals, and one on his letters. Eight overall. It's an 800-page collection or so. Um, but a lot of that wasn't, you know, a lot of this was just written pers for personally, for, for personal use, right? He didn't publish a lot of books. He, he wasn't known as... That wasn't really what he did. He was more of a government bureaucrat. And when he wrote, he wrote to, you know, make a case for something in, in terms of policy or whatever. Um, but when he does write this book, it's absolutely beautiful. And it's the kind of book that makes you cry. It, it makes you, if you read it carefully, you can read it again and again and get more out of it, even though it's very simple and, and the points are straightforward. It's a wonderful book. You really should read it. And I know it's very popular. Its popularity has spread, um, you know, so much. Like I, my my sister, she gets a cabin in northern Wisconsin every summer. I don't know if she did it this summer, but she used used to with her kids. And I, if I was over there in the summer, which I often am, not this summer because of COVID, but I try, I, you know, I'd spend a day or, or up there, right, uh, with my parents, you know, just out in the woods. You know, eat, have some beers, listen to the game, whatever. Uh, but, you know, when you rent these cabins, they sometimes have books, you know, the books they buy, and, you know, pulp novels, you know, mass market paperbacks and things. But the, the, one of these had the San County Almanac, right? And, and I was rereading some of the essays. Then, um, like, I can still picture this paperback version, right, with the, the bird, with the, the geese on the cover. I think that comes from, like, the second chapter of, or the second the February passage of the Almanac part. So I think this work is part of pop culture in a way. It's part of, of, of when we think about nature writing, we think of this book, right? It just, I guess it, it's close to home to me because it's, it's, you know, it's about Wisconsin in part, but not fully. Now, let's talk about this book overall. Um, the book has three parts to it. The first part is... Well, the whole title is a Sand County Almanac and Sketches Here and There. And then it's illustrated by Charles Schwartz. The illustrations are wonderful, are great. Um, so part one is the almanac itself, the Sand County Almanac. So that's what's set in Wisconsin. It's, it's only about 80 pages. Uh, it's got a chapter for every month. And for each month, there, there's one to three, no, one to four little stories or vignettes uh, of nature in that time. So it's just if you were to live in this part of this little part of the world for a year these are the things you would see the geese returning for instance the um, certain plants certain types of flowers emerging right it's just what you, it's like a year in the life of the woods or the forest right in little vignettes some of these months are just one little vignette and, and this others april has the most four um, but i think maybe november is the longest Altogether, about 80 pages, right? ending with a with a rather sad story about a, a marked bird, a bird who with a number, right? So they can keep track of populations. 
All right, that's what I'm gonna. We'll look closer. Look, take a look closer look at that in this this episode. The next episode, we'll look at the other half of a San Antonio Almanac. Now, part one sketches here and there are different essays of different, like similar types of writing, small vignettes uh, with a clear point presented simply. Same kind of writing, but uh, some are said elsewhere in Wisconsin, some are. Illinois, some are in Arizona, some are in Mexico, one's in Oregon, one's in Manitoba. These thematically are all about destruction and violence towards nature. You know, I didn't notice that the first time I read it, that there's some of that in part one, in the Almanac part two, where you do get the sense of human destruction, but it's not the focus quite so much. It's more about nature having its own kind of consciousness, having its own perspective. Right. Uh, you know, the, the simple things like how the squirrels know your land better than you do. Right. There's this autonomy to nature, this separateness, but that we that we can be a part of. Right. But we also do exploit it. But that's not the focus of that part. It's more the nature of the land itself. Part two, though, is almost all about destruction. It's all about modernity. It's about the roads coming in. It's about destroying the predators, uh, thinking like I'm out in a great essay that you really should read. Um, uh, invasive species, or again, again, how humans have disrupted nature. And then part three is called the upshot, and this is like the theoretical foundation of it. So this is where the land ethic um, essay is written, one called Wildlife in American Culture. These are more high-level analytical essays. They're not hard, but in, in, in Leopold's introduction, he says, you know, you can read the first two without the last part. You don't have to read the last part if you don't want to. It's more technical but I think that's good stuff too it's not hard you should read all you should read all of it it only takes one sitting really it's, it's 180 pages but so it goes down so smooth um, you really you really can read it in one sitting if you want one one evening all right so that's the overall view here so I will kind of talk a little bit about part one and then next episode I'll, I'll go into parts two and three and get into the land ethic. Uh, and then we'll see where Leopold takes us. Then we'll go back in time, literally, to some of his first nature writings, all the way back to uh, 1917. Um, you know, we wrote a letter, addressed to the Rotary Club on wildlife protection in 1917, back to the Progressive Era. Um, and we can kind of trace Leopold's career from like the origins of conservation all the way to to his death and, and the publication of a San County Almanac. So anyways, I'm kind of happy. I'm kind of excited to do this. Um, so he starts with a little foreword um, where he sets up kind of the decline of nature. Um, like winds and sunsets, wild things were taken for granted until progress began to do away with them. Now we face the question whether a still higher standard of living is worth its cost in things natural, wild, and free. For us of the minority, the opportunity to see geese is more important than television, and the chance to find a Pasquay flower is the right as inalienable as free speech. Uh, so he's writing at a time, maybe before mass culture, before like the golden age of capitalism, but at a time in, you know, after World War II when there was this optimism about prosperity, with the invention of the TV, with the expansion of suburbia, with the Levittowns and the returning soldiers getting GI built, you know, cheap loans for houses and all that. 
the expansion of this middle class life. And I think Leopold is already quite prescient in his concern about what are people who are disconnected from youth, disconnected from their youngest age from nature, what attitude will they have towards nature? Um, now, actually, I was just talking about this in one of the Lovecraft recordings, looking at some of his letters. You know, I'm not sure that like farmers have more of a relationship to have a better or more true relationship with nature. You know, farmers do a lot of horrible things to nature, right? They, they more than anyone else, they see the exploitation of nature as their key. Yes, some some farmers are permaculturists. Some cult, some farmers are into sustainability, but that's not all of them. And and I think we shouldn't idealize people who have like a connection to the land as somehow being more natural, naturally ecological, right? A lot of the great ecological thinkers come from from cities, right? They're people who appreciate the loss, right? And that's what brings them to the land. But uh, anyways, he's concerned about the decline of nature, and he's right to be concerned. Obviously, seventy years later, we're we're worse, right? Things have gotten worse. Um, now. It's so heartbreaking what he writes here. There's so many heartbreaking moments in the San Antonio Almanac. I can't mention them all without maybe tearing up, but... I mean, this is so tragic. Listen to this. These wild things, I admit, had little human value until mechanization assured us of a good breakfast and until science disclosed the drama of where they came from and how they live. The whole conflict boils down to a question of degree. We in the minority see the law of diminishing returns in progress. Our opponents do not. Tragic in two ways. One is that this is even a conflict, that, that there are people who, who don't do, who persist in not seeing value in nature. The other tragedy is it's, it's only with our prosperity that's destroying nature that we, we, can, uh, we can afford to appreciate nature, right? Like when we're struggling in the dirt for our survival, we don't have the luxury to save the spotted owl or whatever, right? We don't have that freedom to worry about species going extinct. You know, when you look at developing countries and they want to industrialize on coal, and, and they probably shouldn't. It's not good long-term for the planet. But at the same time, they don't have time to wait, right? I, I remember even here in China, which is a fairly prosperous country these days, uh, at least in the east, Eastern parts, I, I gave a video, I showed a video about permaculture, the principles of permaculture. It's a nice little video. And one student got really mad at me and said like, you know, we don't have time to play games of, of, uh, with permaculture. I understand, said, I understand what this is, but we don't have time. And, and to some degree that's true in a lot of developing countries, right? You're, you're still trying to deal with giving people the basic necessities of life. Po trying to achieve post-scarcity and the basic necessities of life. But once we achieve that and we got this mass culture, this consumer culture, um, a, a post-scarcity culture of affluence, that's when we can appreciate nature. But by then, maybe it's too late. Maybe we already have a civilization that's rooted to destroying all that is natural around us. I don't know. I could, we start out kind of on a bad, in a bad place in this book. So um, towards the end of this introduction, this forward, he gets to the real problem. 
And this is going to be taken up again in the, the analytical essays, which I'll look at in the next episode. He's, he writes, conservation is getting nowhere because it's incompatible with our Abrahamic concept of land. We abuse land because we regard it as a commodity belonging to us. When we see land as a community to which we belong, we may begin to use it with love and respect. So the Abrahamic concept of land, that's just the land, the, the idea coming from the Bible, the idea that God gives us the land to do what, what, what that what we wish, right? Um, we guard it as a commodity. We commodify land. That's capitalism more than, I think, the, from the Bible. But, you know, what's, I, I think there is some, uh, maybe there is a problem in the West in how nature is viewed. I, I think I, I'm open-minded to that, to that perspective that there's kind of like an original sin of the West in this idea that somehow God gives us the land, you know, as part of the covenant, right, for our own use, that that earth has no, no value outside of what it can do for us. Obviously, many traditions don't share that view at all. It's just they don't happen to be that that's not the culture that could define the modern world. Right. And even those ideas exist and they, they might even be in parts of the world that are emerging uh, more significantly. Indigenous people, not so much, but um, it doesn't matter, though, like the DNA of the modern world is there and it's 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 rooted to this. But this gets us to a question that's going to take up in the, like, the land ethic. What's the alternative? And that is human beings being part, seeing ourselves as part of nature and, see, and, and giving land, the land, we can talk about the sea ethic or, or whatever other ethic you want to expand it to, giving them the same respect as, as ourselves, the same moral questions, the same ethical concerns. The same questions, how should I act, that we ask about how we behave with each other uh, or, you know, should apply to, to the land as well. Okay, then we get into part one, which is the Sand County Almanac. And there's no reason to go blow, blow by blow through this. They're just, they're just beautiful. Um, altogether, we, like I said, we have 12 chapters here. They're not labeled as chapters. They're just months. It, it is an almanac. It's... Very personal stories. It's stories of, of nature, but it's, it's told through the cycle of one year, January through December. And sometimes it's just little minutiae, but like the, the tracks on the snow during the January thaw. Um, you have moments in which Leopold talks about, you know, anthropomorphizes animals a little bit. You know, or, or shows how animals and, and nature doesn't quite fit into our economic logic. He, he kind of goes both ways, I think. He, he sometimes anthropomorphizes them, like looking at... Um, well, I'll read a bit that made me think about this. Uh, a meadow mouse, startled by my report, starts damply across the skunk tree. Why is he abroad in daylight? Probably because he feels grieved about the thaw. Today is maze of secret tunnels, laboriously chewed through on the matted grass under the snow or tunnels no more, but only past exposed to public view and ridicule. Indeed, the thawing sun has mocked the basic premises of the microteen economic system. The mouse is a sober citizen who knows that grass grows in order that the mice may store it as underground haystacks, and that snow falls in order that mice may build subways from stack to stack, supply, demand, and transport all neatly organized. To the mouse, snow needs freedom from want and fear. So he, Leopold here, 
he kind of he certainly applies these human concepts of supply and demand of economy of citizenship to animals and this is you shouldn't do that it doesn't make sense but other times he undermines this view so i don't think he's really married to it he's just trying to convey in the simple language to his readers what's going on here and he wants us to empathize with them i, I think that's why he's doing it this way right obviously we shouldn't assume like a, a cat loves its young in the way a human mother does that's anthropomorphizing them and it doesn't mean they don't have a relationship or there's not feeling of there of some sort i'm not saying animals don't have feelings or internal lives obviously not but it's not ours it's different than ours right just like animals are different in every way from every species maybe it's different it's not just animals humans i mean across species you have different experiences so he's trying to get us to empathize with them i, I think now he even says snow means freedom from want and fear this is this is rooseveltian language here freedom from want freedom from, that's two of the four freedoms uh, of world war ii and, and Leopold here is directly bringing them up. Uh, later on, he uses freedom from fear when talking about Outer Mountain. Maybe we'll get to that in the next episode. It's in the second part of it. Um, because even in this essay, he starts this way, kind of going at it, like saying, well, what if he's just being a, a rational economist or a rational citizen? You know. But then he says about a skunk, Later on, also in the spring thaw, the same, this is still January, uh, the skunk track leads on showing no interest in possible food and no concern over the rompings or retributions of his neighbors. I wonder what's on his mind. What got him out of bed? Can one impute romantic motives to this corpulent fellow, dragging his ample belt line through the slush? Finally, in, okay, in he, so he says, I can't know what the skunk feels. Right. So if you go back, how could you know what the mouse feels? How can you talk about the mouse as a sober citizen saving his nuts, uh, creating this subway as a kind of a future supply and demand thing for the future supply? You know, it, it doesn't correspond. I think the later statement is more accurate. It's like these things exist and do things. And there's a gap between between me and them. I can't understand them fully, but I understand they have a subjectivity. Right, and he understands it has a life of its own and its own patterns that don't conform to our own. And I think that's what makes some of these passages in the first part of a San Conan so beautiful and so wonderful. Um, in February, he gets to uh, he brings up humans right away at the beginning, and and I think this is part of his effort to to bridge some gap i think maybe now if people talk about nature on its own terms we're more used to it i think at the time leopold is writing you know the readers are still expecting well i want to know about me right or what does this mean for me and so he does that maybe nature writing now isn't bound by that same expectation but uh, he does this here uh february uh, the section called good oak um, there are two spiritual dangers in not owning a farm. One is the danger of supposing that breakfast comes from grocery and the other that heat comes from the furnace. Uh, so his suggestion then is you should plant a garden and, and cut down a tree, right? So then we get, um, so then he doesn't jump to cutting down trees. He talks again about rabbits and their relationship with the oaks, oak trees. And only then, uh, 
And he talks about natural renewal of the forest and all that. And only then does he get into the, the, the chopping down of the tree. Um, and he does this with this time travel narrative, which is kind of nice. Actually, you know, each of these vignettes does something different. There's a lot of them, right? Um, there's, there's 12 months, and each month, most months have more than one passage. So he does a lot here. But each one is kind of different. You know, he's just going to repeat himself that, that often here. He's, he certainly has a lot to say. Um, and he has different devices and techniques to tell these stories. Um, so here it's time travel. And obviously when you're cutting down the tree, you have the, the rings. And you can see you know, how, many, how old the, for, the tree is. And you can kind of do your thought experiment or you go back in time. Where was this tree in 1920? Where was this tree in 1910 or, or, or 1980, right? So you can kind of go back in time as you, as you uh, cross through all the way down to the Civil War. And then the final line, or one, one of the final ones breaks your heart here. It was likewise in 1870, so they're almost to the middle of the tree. It's likewise in 1870 that a market gunner boasted in the American sportsman of killing 6,000 ducks in one season near Chicago. Rest, cries the chief sawyer, and we pause for breath. So that's another thing I want to say about Leopold. He never, especially at this point in his career anyways, he never lets go of you. You, he starts out saying, we've been horrible stewards, right? And we're losing something valuable. You know, he doesn't, he's, he's not aware of climate change the way that we are, or the existential threat to our own existence by how we treat nature. Maybe on some level he knew, but it's not on the forefront. He's saying, we're losing something valuable and something that's, that has its own value outside of our own perspectives, right? But he never lets you let go of that. Like even sometimes he's just dropping a, a, a note, almost like a footnote. Like, yeah, like we did this. And, and he never lets go of your heart that way. And I, I think that's another part of the brilliance of this. Um, um, but there's always hope. I think there, there's always hope, especially in this first part of this, the book in that nature is able to repair itself, that nature does have, there's an eternity due to it, there's cycles to it. So even the post-life of, of wood, the afterlife of wood, he ends here, he's saying, these ashes come spring, I will return to the orchard at the foot of the sand hill. They'll come back to me again, perhaps as red apples, or perhaps as a spirit of enterprise in some fat October, October squirrel, who for reasons unknown to him is bent on planting acorns, right? Right? Why are acorns so yummy for the squirrels, right? It's because sometimes they don't, well, usually the squirrels, like, they bite off the top, right? So it doesn't, when they store away, it doesn't start sprouting, you know, a tree in their little squirrel fort, squirrel house. Sometimes they forget, sometimes they miss, or sometimes they drop it, right? And then you get a new oak tree. Um, what else? The geese return. This one's notable. I mean, it's great. It's a sign of spring. I mean, it's like every every area, every part of the country, every part of the world has its own sign of spring, right? And it, it's based on its local ecosystem, the local species. It's the smells. It's the, the feelings. You know, if you've lived in different places, you know this. Like the, the, the spring feels differently in different places, right? And I can tell you exactly what like, or I can recognize. I don't know if I could describe it, but I could recognize 
spring in Wisconsin, right? I know what that's like. Um, here it's the return of the Keith. Um, and then, this is, I mean, he, he's so good at, you know, sometimes anthropomorphizing them and then undercutting that, but making sure his human readers get it and 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 to do that he has to kind of talk through their mouth or talk through their mind um so what's on everyone's mind is the big event of the generation world war ii right so he writes about the geese here it is an irony of history that the great power should have discovered the unity of nations in cairo 1942 the geese at the world had that notion for a longer time and each march they stake their lives on its essential truth at the beginning, there was only the unity of the ice sheet. They followed the unity of the March Thaw and the northward hijara of the international geese. And then he talks about all the other global travels of the geese. It's beautiful, right? It's, it's that nature doesn't, obviously, you know, the obvious fact that nature doesn't have borders. But um, I think for his readers, that's, that's, it's, a, it's kind of an eye-opening thing. This international commerce of geese. There he's doing a little bit of anthropomorphizing again. All right. The waste corn of Illinois is carried through the clouds of the Arctic tundras. There to combine with the waste sunlight of a nightless June to grow goslings for all the land between. And in this animal barter for food, of food for light and winter warmth for summer solitude, the whole continent receives a net profit of wild poem dropped from the murky skies upon the muds of March. Um, you know, there's still that kind of conservation logic that like, it's good for us too. And, and here he makes a point that it's, it's good for us. Obviously the land ethic eventually will say this is valuable on its own right. You don't have to quantify it. What's the value of, of goose droppings on, a, on the soil for, for our agriculture? What's the GDP impact of that? I mean, he doesn't, you don't have to do that. Um. But for some people, maybe you have to start. For, that's how you reach some people, I guess. Now, as I, as I said, he never really lets go of, of the moral argument throughout here. You know, you can look at it and say, oh, these are just, this is just a, an almanac. And then we're going to get uh, the theory at the end in the, in the essay, The Land Ethic. But if you read it carefully, The Land Ethic's always there. Um, as well as the threat of destruction, even in the, the almanac section, which is more more optimistic about the autonomy of nature. But still, the human impact is always there, so he never lets go of, of that part of it. Uh, quote, the railroads, of course, use flamethrowers and chemical sprays to clear the track of weeds, but the cost of such necessary clearance is still too high to extend it much beyond the actual rails. Perhaps further improvements are on the offerings. And then he like goes in even deeper and says, like, how can we care for nature? How can we understand nature as a moral entity in its own right when we don't even see other humans that way? Quote, the erasure of a human subspecies is largely painless to us if we know little enough about it. A dead Chinaman is of little import to those whose awareness of things Chinese is bounded by the occasional dish of chow mein. We grieve only for what we know. The erasure of Silphamon from Western Dane County is no cause for grief if one only knows it as a name in a botany book. Right. That's so true. I think, I think 
you you read in the news some species went extinct and you're like oh that's sad but you never saw one you don't really know why they're important you know and it just sort of happens it's just something there and so much more so for you know it's one thing like the white rhino or the tiger you know we all know what a tiger is but a lot of species are eradicated or, or destroyed or displaced or you know that we have no relationship to unless we have a relationship with the land right and and how do you get that relationship with the land how do you restore it it's not easy to see um how in a mechanized modern age by the end of the century 75 percent of the world's population will be in cities right most kids they they obviously see cartoon tigers and bears before they ever see a real one if they ever do see a real one outside of a zoo um you know people a lot certainly plenty of people see the value of nature but you know somehow that relationship has to be restored i think leopold believes um so anyways uh yeah i'm kind of going on here for a while i i could say a lot more um because leopold doesn't present himself here only as a as a conservationist he shows himself honestly as someone acts in hand at times he's got a whole section in about november about preparing the winter fuel where he talks about himself as axe in hand he is a destroyer right of of nature at times and sometimes he has to be for his own survival sometimes for his own comfort uh there's a really powerful essay in the second part i think where he talks about the pleasure the joy he got out of killing some some birds like hunting birds and he talks about he went back and did it again right he never says i was bad for doing that it's, it's just it's such an interesting reflection though on on his own role in destruction of nature now the final one the final little vignette here is called 65290 um which is about banded birds so you you ban the bird's leg you know so if you keep a track of populations or whatever you do that and you mark it and you catch the bird again you say oh that's that guy and then you can kind of those that survive see who survives how long how many have kids how many come back whatever you're looking for right so this one was one of seven chickadees these were chickadees one of seven chickadees in like a, the class of 37 that they were following and he was the final survivor but i think they, they lost him and so he doesn't really he, he, they couldn't trap it again and so they really don't know where this chickadee is quote the to, to, to the end the almanac section 65290 has long since gone to his reward i hope that in his new woods great oaks full of ants eggs keep falling all day long with never a wind to ruffle his composure or take the edge off his appetite and i hope that he still wears my band um you know, I, I, I love this passage. It's about how little we know about nature and how limited our view window into it is. And even when we try to study them, there's only so much we can know, right? Like now, I guess we have GPS and things. So maybe we know a little bit more. By the time, you couldn't. You never knew their adventures they went on, right? And you never fully can know what they what they know about your land. That, that comes up a few times in this too, is how like these animals or even the trees perhaps know the land better than Leopold does. Leopold is, 
is much more aloof from the land as well as he knows that he's much more aloof from it than these creatures who live it who are who who make it their home and there's so much going on i mean and that's the lesson too here is just there's so much going on under the surface of of what we see uh if if we're just in our cities or even if we're just in our shack and we don't go out or if we just see nature as something we can use whatever our sin might be ignorance or caprice or 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 actual malevolence towards nature it's it's mostly unknown to us right and and of course leopold can only give us a little bit of a taste of it but it's so beautifully done gotta read this i think um in the next episode, I'll, I'll maybe spend a little bit more time going more systematically, at least through the part three, because part two kind of is like this, although it's not in the almanac format. It's more small vignettes, um, but they're all over the Western Hemisphere. Um, and then we'll look at part three, the four kind of cornerstone essays that cap this. And we'll look at Thinking Like a Mountain, which is actually in part two, um, but a great essay beautiful one really dealing with the problem of predators so that's coming up in the next next episode of the american writers 100 pages at a time podcast uh thanks for listening let me know your thoughts of leopold his place in the in ecology him as a writer uh i'd love to see your opinions about that i'm excited to hear what you have to say about that and if you want to hear me go off on more ecology writers uh, let me know so I guess I'll be it for now. I will uh, see you next time. Uh, you can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Now the Thanks, men uh, on highways need those jobs we know. Let's put them to work planting new trees to grow. Building new parks where the kids can play. Pushing that semen monster away Oh, stand by me Let's protect this tree From the freeway misery There's a cement octopus Sits in Sacramento